Hello, and welcome to the Breathe Easy podcast. My name is Melissa New, and I'm an assistant professor of medicine at the University of Colorado, and I practice adult pulmonary and critical care medicine at the Rocky Mountain Regional VA Medical Center. Today, for our Thoracic Oncology Assembly podcast, we will be talking about teaching bronchoscopy to new learners, which is something that some of us do every year as we welcome new fellows to our programs. I have the pleasure of speaking with two experts in this area, Dr. Rosemary Adamson and Dr. Darlene Nelson. Would you please introduce yourselves? Sure, and thanks very much for inviting me. My name is Rosemary Adamson. I am an associate professor of medicine at the University of Washington, and I also practice adult pulmonary and critical care medicine. I do all my patient care at the Seattle VA, and I'm also associate um, fellowship program director at the University of Washington, where I um, do a lot of organization of our procedural workshops. Thanks, Melissa. I'm super excited to be here today with you and Rosemary. My name is uh, Darlene Nelson, and I'm a pulmonary and critical care physician at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. I'm an assistant professor of medicine and also the program director for our pulmonary and critical care medicine fellowships. I'm also trained as an interventional pulmonologist and spend most of my time doing bronchoscopy. In that role, I also direct our introductory Midwest bronchoscopy introductory course, which uh, welcomes over 17 institutions and over 90 fellows every summer to teach them introductory bronchoscopy. So this is an area very near and dear to my heart. So thank you again for the invite. Thanks so much for being here. So we'll just jump in with um, how do you have your fellows learn about bronchoscopy? And is there anything that you have them do even before picking up a bronchoscope to do their first procedure? Thanks, Melissa. So I'll take that question first. So we do quite a bit actually before we have our fellows pick up their first bronchoscope with the patient. The first thing we do, we have a whole month of boot camp during our fellowship, and two days of that is dedicated to learning bronchoscopy bronchoscopic and plural-based procedures. Before they even do their first bronchoscopic boot camp, though, we send them bronchoscopic videos to learn and to watch, to under, to first understand bronchoscopic anatomy, how to hold the scope, um, how the scope is meant to be used, the different instruments with the scope, potential complications. After they get through those videos and some pre-course materials, we then do a full day of hands-on workshop. This is a cadaver-based course, and the fellows typically perform about 30 bronchoscopies on cadavers before the end of the day. Uh, what this really allows them to do is get a good uh, experience with repetition, learning those motor skills to understand airway anatomy and some of the basic tools that you're going to use in bronchoscopy, particularly a BAL and a forceps, both for endobronchial biopsy as well as for transbronchial biopsies. This provides a good introduction, but arguably it's still not enough before the first actual patient procedure. So in order to reinforce learning before coming into the bronchoscopic suite, we also have them practice additionally on the simulator. So we're fortunate enough to have a high fidelity simulator located in our hospital, and we ask the fellows to do five different cases on the simulator as well. Um, then, then we have their first introductory bronchoscopy month, which again is done in a, a graded fashion uh, with graded autonomy before they do a complete full procedure. So I'll first teach them, you know, just how to numb the airway and airway inspections many times before we start having them do uh, different procedural aspects. Thanks. Rosemary, so do you have anything to Darlene, add? Yes, Darlene has the uh, wonderful situation of having a month-long orientation, um, which uh, I'm sure I'm not the only other uh, 
faculty member who's very envious of. <laughs> um, uh, we have a two-day orientation, which is, you know, a lot better than when it was one day. Um, so <laughs> that does include some time with a bronchoscope and some time with uh, the various instruments. We um, reserve EBUS training for a little bit later rather than putting that in the first two days. Um, so we stick with white light bronchoscopy training at that time. And like, like at Darlene's program, we have a set of videos. Um, they are available on the web to any and everybody. So we can make that URL available on the website. And so we have this series of videos, the introductory videos for the novice bronchoscopists. They're also great for review and just-in-time learning later. Um, and so we ask our fellows to watch a certain set of those videos before orientation so that they have some background knowledge. And then at orientation, we will have them uh, run the airway uh, a few times on different models and introduce them to um, forceps and brushes and uh, performance of a BAL. Ours is not a cadaver um, workshop. We use, um, well, when our high fidelity simulator is working, we do use that. <laughs> That's one of the problems with high fidelity simulators is that they can uh, break a, a lot more easily than I would say low fidelity simulators. So our wonderful backup is um, like a silicone model with a head and a set of airways. And that's actually super useful because then you can also see the little light inside the airways and point and say, no, you're there. You didn't think you were there, but you are. <laughs> um, I think that's actually quite helpful for sort of learning the 3D anatomy. So uh, we don't have as long as Darlene. I think that her program uh, with the boot camp is fantastic to get in, you know, 30 Bronx before the first patient. There's some data to suggest that you, your anatomy learning, um, you pretty much learn the anatomy of the airways within about 20 bronchs. And so it's ideal to get that 20 done, not on a patient. <laughs> um, and so ideally it would be great to, to have um, fellows achieve that many before moving on to a patient. We, we don't manage that for all of our fellows because some will go from the two-day orientation to a uh, rotation where they're doing a bronch the very next day on, uh, on a patient. But some institutions will have um, criteria, like they'll ask all their first-year fellows to do, for example, 20 bronchs on the simulator before their first um, bronchoscopy on a patient. So it sounds like both of you have a, a big emphasis on that practice, the motor practice and cognitive learning um, that can happen before even walking into a patient procedure. Um, and thanks for um, referencing the idea of videos and um, we'll put some links to those, so to some websites at the end. So um, walk me through when you have your fellow coming in um, to the Bronx suite for their first several procedures. What do you have them do? Do you talk about pre-procedure um, elements? How do you um, get them kind of going with their first patient procedures? Thanks, Melissa. That's a super important question because it's something I'm sure most people listening to this podcast do on a routine basis. I think a pre-procedure discussion is super important as you were uh, already alluding to, to really, first of all, 
you may not have ever worked with your learner before, and you really need to understand what is their experience before coming into this procedure. Is this their first bronchoscopy ever? In which case, then I have different goals for them and they have different, should have different goals for themselves. Or is it their 15th or their 30th? You know, every first year fellow kind of comes into, you know, engagement with you at different times during their year. So I always sit down first with the fellow and find out what their experience has been thus far. Then we're going to talk about the procedure. Um, and I actually like to watch them do their first informed consent. I know that may seem a, a little bit much, but sometimes the informed consent part is is a really important part of the procedure that I think it's underplayed and the fellows may not really understand all the risks of what is going on. And so I'll, I'll let them do it. And then we talk about it afterwards away from the patient in a safe space to try to talk about um, things that they can improve on with that. Then based on what the procedure entails, you know, if it's um, just a BAL or more of a straightforward, simple procedure, I will typically try to have them do as much of the procedure as they can without any um, downside to the patient, right? So first and foremost, I think patient safety is uh, utmost concern, and I don't want patients to bear the burden of procedural training. And so as a result, um, you know, we'll, we'll talk through the case ahead of time, then I'll let them go ahead and try to perform that. And I try my best not to speak too much during the case, because that in and of itself is another aspect of cognitive load for them. They are focused probably solely on how to drive the scope and move the scope. And if I'm speaking at them constantly, then that's another distraction. So I speak to them when needed, but we save most of the debrief actually for the end of the case, unless it's something that I really need to intervene on in the middle. And then I try to have them do as much of the case as possible. But if there's parts where they're struggling, I don't let them struggle forever. You know, I'll let them struggle through one or two attempts. But then if they're really struggling, then I just I step in and we'll kind of take over the case and then we'll debrief it again at the end. So um, every learner is different, but that's generally my approach. Great. Thanks. Yes, I, we, we share many similarities there. Um, I might sometimes maybe even often, particularly for the EBUS cases, I'll do the first consent myself, um, just in the interests of time. <laughs> there's, there's always so much pressure in the uh, clinical environment and so many things going on that um, I agree with you, Darlene, that I think we uh, perhaps underemphasize the importance of including appropriate information using appropriate language in um, consent. And so I will often model that the first time and then and then join in and listen to um, further consent. Uh, that maybe you may have more time in your orientation to spend on that than we do. <laughs> um, so uh, then, likewise, I try really hard to to not hold the scope uh, and will um, try to get my wording right to explain what I would like uh, a fellow to do. And I've definitely improved over the years at developing a repertoire of vocabulary required for different learners <laughs> to explain what I mean. Um, and I agree with you that if one is talking about something separate, then that can absolutely add to cognitive load. So one of the things I'll do, and I particularly I think of this in EBUS maybe because I've, I've just been doing more EBUSes recently, um, I will say, okay, pause, and then I'll tell them like some step. Okay, we're going to go down the right. We're going to try to find 11R. Where is that? Tell me where it is. How are you going to get there? Okay, 
go ahead. Um, and all of that time, the, the fellow will actually just be standing holding the scope. And it's not that long because they, we should already have sort of gone through that material at some point. Um, but I find that particularly with Ebus, when you've lost your white light view, <laughs> that um, I want to ensure that we have a shared understanding of what we're going to do next um, before heading off um, uh, into whatever area to do that. Um, yeah, so that's, that's and, and I agree that, um, you know, I'll give some little comments during the procedure and then I'll definitely debrief afterwards, um, either just to reinforce things that we talked about and particularly to reinforce the things that went well um, so that that, those, that really gets solidified. Um, I also feel uh, that I will use perhaps slightly different words if my patient is awake under moderate sedation, as opposed to if my patient is under general anesthesia. Um, even then, I will try to be very respectful about the words that I use. I think that's really important. Um, I, it's always amazing what we hear patients tell us they remember from procedures. And so I think it's really important the words that we use. Um, and, there, and there may be times during the procedure with moderate sedation where I am not necessarily saying everything. Maybe I've taken over for a little bit and then I'm going to hand back and then I'll debrief afterwards about what exactly went on and, and why did we need to do things that way. Rosemary, I love your points on that and completely agree. And I just wanted to reemphasize one of the things you said, which I think is so important, is that it's appropriate to demonstrate sometimes. Like there's this, I think as a feeling, especially for young staff um, where, you know, you don't want to ever take it away from the learner because you, you know, you were just there and you know how much they want to do it but there is a there's a part of learning that is comes from demonstration and so if someone is really a novice and really just learning how to do something they actually sometimes need to see it and then you can hand the scope back to them and then they can do it so i don't i, I want to make sure that people understand it's okay to do a demonstration it's okay to maybe stick that first note just like you said and show them how it's done and then let them do it that's um a lot of my new staff or new faculty that come on board and they're like well i didn't want to do the procedure for them i'm like no it's okay like show them how it's done so they do it right the first time. Uh, so I just I agree with you wholeheartedly and wanted to emphasize that. I think those are those are great points. Um, I'm wondering if you could give some examples of particular language that you have found useful um, in coaching fellows through some of the these tough spots, like maybe a common um, difficulty that you've seen um, uh, learners having with bronchoscopy and how, what kind of language do you particularly find useful? So when you first started that question, one of the things that came to mind for me is something that I've discussed with um, one of my colleagues, Amy Morris. Um, and in fact, we have a video about procedural teaching um, that's on the APCCMPD website. Um, so you can check that out. Um, and so one of the words that we try to avoid is stop um, because that can feel quite nerve-wracking to everybody. <laughs> um, uh, so we'll use the word pause um, and we'll use uh, non-verbal, you know, use hand gestures um, to, um, to sort of get people's attention when what you mean is stop, but, may, but maybe that might find it might sound uh, a little um, worrying to people. Um, in terms of specific areas. Um, I um, Actually, I'll just pass to Dali. Maybe she's got some examples off the top of her mind. I need to think about a few. No problem. Um, so, you know, some of the specific verbals that I will do, especially if um, 
I guess it depends a little bit on the situation, but if let's say there's, uh, if it's a moderate sedation and I'm concerned about what the patient may uh, be hearing, I want to make sure that I'm speaking positively and never um, negatively potentially about their diagnosis. And so, you know, we talk about adequacy as opposed to like seeing cancer cells. So if you're doing an EBIS and you have rows and you're, you're looking at your samples, um, you know, we always use the language, do we have adequacy, you know, or do we have enough for markers, those type of things, I won't say like, yes, I see malignant cells, we don't talk about blood, we talk about, you know, do I see any heme, <laughs> you know, just things like that, that the patient may remember, they seem kind of trite, maybe, um, I agree with Rosemary to say, I don't ever say stop, I may say, uh, let's hold for a moment or pause or try to find a safe word that you've identified ahead of time with the learner to say like, this is going to be our key to like, we're going to pause for a second and direct my your attention towards me so we can reassess where we are and maybe need to adjust. Um, and then I'll often say, you know, hold, uh, I'd like you to adjust or, or, you know, think about this. Um, so I try to just use language that is very positive. Um, so that if the patient's hearing them, I'm not taking, you know, making them think that their procedure is going inappropriately. That's what I have off the top of my head. Rosemary, back to you. Great. Thanks. So I was, um, I agree with all of that. Thank you, Darlene. I was thinking about what are sort of common, um, challenges. Um, so there's, Learning the anatomy, that just takes time. And um, uh, it may be the case that Darlene never sees a fellow in the Bronx suite who doesn't know their anatomy because of her fantastic orientation. Um, but from time to time, that happens uh, for me. And then I will ask fellows to review the video with the anatomy again. And I'll ask them, I'll go through the anatomy and draw it out in a simple manner that they can repeat that drawing. I really feel. And or, and or ask them to teach it back to me in a drawn fashion. Um, you know, you, you learn the best when you have to teach something. Um, uh, and then there are a couple of other um, apps and websites that one can use to help with that. So if you can access your hyperdality simulator, fantastic. Um, if you can't, then actually Olympus Bronco Guide, which is available for download on um, your iPhone or other product uh, electronic device, uh, that's really a good one. Uh, you can sort of go forward and backwards and you can make it show you the labels of the airways or not, which is extremely helpful. There's also one called thoracic anesthesia, I think it's .org, um, and that one is very useful, although it doesn't go down to the segmental airways, which is uh, a shame because it's intended for um, use in thoracic anesthesia. Um, so those are a couple of things uh, that sort of a, cl a classic early challenge is just learning the airways. Um, procedurally, I think at the beginning, everyone struggles to get into the soup segment. Um, and, um, and so I have specific words, I'm sure Darlene has as well, talking about, well, you can choose to rotate your wrist all that way, or you could choose uh, to back into the soup segment, which is not a great phrase in itself. So I might use that sort of as an intro before I then explain what do I mean by backing in. And um, I find I will use the clock face, but I actually really struggle with the clock face myself. And so every now and then I'll mess up. <laughs> um, uh, uh, and so 
I, I will try to use the clock face because I think it is a helpful thing that everybody kind of knows somewhat, although, um, yes, I do make mistakes. Um, what, what other thoughts do you have, darling? No, that's true. And I wish I could say that my intro course really made everyone learn their anatomy by day one, but that is definitely not the case. Um, though there are many fellows who still sh show up and are quite rusty on their anatomy. And I do many of the same things. I, I actually even just find a, a simple thing, the the old netter uh, nomenclature for bronchi, like, um, you know, we have it printed out and, and put kind of around the Bronx suite, but I also have it on my phone or I love the apps that Rosemary talked about, but, you know, just even going through and being like, okay, so this is where the right upper lobe, you know, should be. And just remembering what, what are the different names of the different uh, segments. And, and then I actually, the, actually for probably the first 10 to 15 bronch, bronchs that I do with anyone, as they're doing their inspection, I have them name for me where they are. Tell me exactly where they are the whole time. So, you know, trachea, now I'm entering the right main stem. I see RC1. I'm looking at the right upper lobe. It has three segments. It has the apical, posterior, and anterior segments. They would also be called RB1, 2, and 3. So we talk through it. I have them talk it out loud throughout their entire bronchos bronchoscopy for at least that first week that I'm working with them or first 15 to 20 that I do with them just because that reinforcement I think continues to help and then when we come you talked about teaching it to others which I think is exactly right and is so important and so then um, we often have a third-year fellow who's working with a first-year fellow in bronchoscopy and I have the third-year fellow first name it all for the first year and then they that reinforces it for them and then the first year then can uh, take it over themselves so there's a lot of kind of peer teaching and coaching that we also ask of them which I think is a good way to reinforce that the Thanks other thing Oh, sorry, Melissa, I was just going to say one other thing. And then, you know, the, as Rosemary was talking about just navigating, we're also, a, I'm also a believer in um, motor memory and just practicing that simple first steps. So, you know, if I, I may have someone, and this is not on a high fidelity simulator, this is just on airways, like Rosemary said, and we'll often take like a, a disposable scope that, you know, isn't that we just will keep around for practice, right? And so you have your airways and a disposable scope, and then they can just practice driving to the right main, and then they can practice just driving to the left main and practice driving to the right main. And so it becomes just an automatic uh, feeling, because one of the things I tell the learners is after you've been doing this for a while, you should know where you are, not even by how you looked, but by how you drove there, just by how your hand had to move to get there. I know I'm in the right upper lobe or the left upper lobe or the left lower lobe. So um, hopefully that they can get to that feeling after practicing. Absolutely. I agree. And um, I find um, that, that we will, I ask all my fellows to keep speaking out loud where they are to me the whole time. I don't, I, we do week long rotations on the consult service. And so um, I might, you know, I might have six bronchs with somebody in that time. And so I, I just want them to tell me what they're doing the whole time. And I, I think that is really helpful. It's also interesting how sometimes something will pop out that you'd have thought, oh, third year, they should really know that. Oh, they don't seem to be totally comfortable with some specific um, part. I, I'm a big fan of having, like uh, Darlene was saying, sort of the motor memory. So I'm a big fan of using the same approach every time. Always start with the upper lobe, then go to the, if you're starting on the right, then the middle lobe, then do the soup segment, then the medial. And so you learn to predict what, where the airways should be. I think that's a, 
an early mistake is to drive right past the upper lobe and miss it <laughs> or, or, you know, or some other airway to just navigate right past it because that black you know, uh, entrance was just sort of hiding in the periphery and, and the individual was not uh, planning to look lateral and a little bit up to, to find that specific airway. So that's a sort of classic early problem is just missing the airway. Yeah, those are all great tips and really good points. Um, so after a, a fellow finishes their procedure, you touched on this a little bit, but maybe we can go into a little bit of detail about what kind of post-procedure feedback are you giving and what have you found um, that the fellows find helpful to hear about? So I think it's really helpful to reinforce all the things that are going well. Um, the, clearly, if there's something that really was an issue, if you had a bronchoscopy where there was a complication, that's going to take the majority of the, feed, the feedback debrief time, and that's totally appropriate. And of course, complications are, they're not necessarily that anything really went wrong. I mean, complications happen. If you do enough procedures, you will experience um, a range of complications. So when you've had a complication, that's it's a little bit different. Um, when things have gone fine, um, then I think it is nice to reinforce the things that you really felt were done correctly and might have contributed to why everything went fine um, so that those get reinforced and those pathways um, stick um, uh, really well. Um, I think it is, it's always helpful if there is some, some little thing that you can provide some um, constructive feedback on. I make a real habit of pointing out that there's a lot of bronchoscopy that is art and not science and personal preference. And so I will often package my feedback with the information that this is how I do it. And this is how I do it for these reasons. Like I'll explain my reasons for my preferences. And as a uh, fellow, what your job is to learn about everybody's different approaches and then work out what makes sense for you and have good rationale, like be able to explain why you choose to do what you do. Um, and there are many reasonable approaches. So I, I, I try to be clear that I'm offering a suggestion. I'm not saying you have to, from now on, always do everything my way. Although maybe with the next front that we do together, you could try out this, this way that I like to do, just to give it a go, see what you think about it. What are your thoughts, Darlene? Yeah, no, thanks, Rosemary. I agree. I love to reinforce what they've done well, right? And so, you know, it's a, it's as simple as um, some, we prep the airway before we do a bronchoscopy. And, you know, if they, um, when they get the bronchoscope through the cords, if the patient didn't cough, I want to reaffirm to them that they did a good prep, you know, and, to, and to say, you know, the things I noticed about your prep were a, you know, the angle of what, how you did this or what, you know, so I want to reinforce what went well, and then tell them why it went well. And then I try to always couch it. I 100% agree with Rosemary that, bronchoscopy has a lot of style to it. And, you know, just even in the small group that uh, practices here at Mayo and bronchoscopy, we have different ways of doing everything from, you know, BAL to how long you should close the forceps for a transbronch biopsy, you know, so I clearly identify which are things that are my preferences so that they don't think that those are dogma. And then I give rationale, as Rosemary said, and then 
I try to identify what I believe would be next steps for them in their improvement. So I, I say, you know, a next thing that you could work on would be X, you know, it, depending on what the bron- the procedure may be. So, um, you know, say for a BAL, it may be something like trying, let's work on not over wedging, you know, so that we don't have so much collapsibility of the airway or try to get an appropriate wedge or those type of things. Um, the other thing that I'll often just do with the fellow is I love to, thankfully, most of the time bronchoscopy uh, goes well, and there's not usually a ton of complications. Occasionally there can be. So I like to ask the what if questions. Okay, so we do a transbronch biopsy. Now that went really well. What if, you know, as you unwedged, you suddenly couldn't see anything? What's your next step? So I try to turn the feedback also into a uh, learning opportunity to to practice in their mind what their next steps would be because you never know when that emergency is going to happen. And, and a good thing, but also a bad thing is that some of the fellows may go through their whole training and never see that emergency. And so if they haven't thought through the steps routinely, then um, when it happens to them, they may be caught off guard. So thanks. Those are really great tips. I'm going to um, incorporate some of those into my own practice. Um, so when, when do you actually like give the fellow the reins to do those um, parts of the procedure that require taking samples? Like sounds like BAL, you're giving them that um, the free reign to do that early on, but what are you looking for to advance them towards um, biopsies, brushings, or, or do you just do it, you know, from the beginning? Well, I'm sure that answer is going to be different for almost every bronchoscopist you talk to, uh, because we all may have a slightly different level of comfort. But um, for me, I want to see that they have good control of the scope before I'm actually going to let them do most anything. So if their navigational skills are really poor, meaning it takes them 15 minutes to do an airway inspection or 20 minutes, and they're just really struggling, I may not let them do a BAL right away. You know, I I want them to be comfortable with navigating the scope and knowing their anatomy probably before I let them do too much. A BAL is definitely the first procedure I will let someone do. Um, And after that, uh, probably you know, it, it really kind of just depends, I think, on how well they're even doing with the BAL before I move them on to the next. But um, for us, we we generally progress from a BAL. And then if they're doing well, they may do endobronchial biopsies or a brush, and then they'll do transbronch biopsies under fluoro. And then EBIS is kind of the more advanced skill kind of at the end of their bronchoscopy training. So, and I definitely do not let them do EBIS unless I feel they've mastered standard flexible <laughs> bronchoscopy. Um, I know that that's a a luxury, I think that we have to, because I know that they're going to get opportunities to EBIS later in their training if I don't give it to them right away. So I know that that's not a luxury everyone can have, but I think ideally EBIS adds in a different level of complexity because you're now having to look at two imaging modalities um, and then also think in three dimensions, which is very different um, than it is for the standard bronchoscopy. So if you can, it's, it's a better Ideally, I think that's a better procedure to learn a little later in your training. And Darlene, I think you'd said that you have a, like a bronch rotation with a first and a third year fellow. Um, yeah, that's, that's really great. That gives you um, sort of opportunities where you're not wasting a bronch without a learner learning something. <laughs> and you can split who's doing what. There are, there are other... Um, programs where which have that kind of model as well, a junior and a senior fellow on together. And then when they're bronching, they can bronch together and they can um, 
you know, the junior fellow um, can do only what seems sort of appropriate, a truly sort of graduated level of responsibility approach, which is fantastic and ideal. Um, we do not have that, um, you know, just for clinical reasons. Um, and so it is possible that I'll have, or, or one of my colleagues, one of the first year fellows is going to go from orientation to a procedure where they're doing transbronchial biopsies potentially the very next day which is not ideal, um, but I think there are ways of approaching that. Um, and as Darlene was saying, you know, uh, I will take this approach where the, uh, the beginning of my week with a fellow, the, the first bronch we do, say it does include transbronchial biopsies, then I would um, have talked a bit about how we're gonna do the transbronchs beforehand. And then during the procedure, I'd, Unless I bronched with them recently, <laughs> for some reason, they're coming back to the rotation kind of soon, and I, I recall. Um, so that's a little rare. Most of the time, I'll have the fellow navigate holding the scope, get us to the right place, and then I will do X number of the transbronchial biopsies myself while talking out, you know, saying out loud exactly what I'm doing and what I'm looking for. I use fluoro for most of my transbronchial biopsies. And so that really adds this extra dimension. We actually control the fluoro pedal ourselves. Um, and that's, that's a lot. There are all these micro skills um, to doing um, biopsy procedures um, with bronchoscopy. And so I sort of, I think about breaking down something like a transbronchial biopsy into these micro skills and adding one micro skill at a time. So, if, um, if I'm reasonably confident that my fellow is going to be comfortable and safe um, doing transbronchial biopsies, then I'll keep the fluoro pedal. I'll keep opening and closing the forceps. Some people will hand that to the tech. I just, I really love being involved. <laughs> um, I, and then of course I'll stabilize the, the scope for them um, like a tech would and just let them manipulate the forceps. And we'll sort of take steps um, and occasionally I might hold the scope. Um, so sort of uh, a higher level fellow, I might take the scope for the fellow and then have them with the forceps and the fluoro pedal. So they're not trying to hold the scope, the forceps and do the fluoro pedal all for the first time altogether. Uh, you know, I'll try to separate these different bits out. Um, so yeah, interesting. I no, I think that's perfect, Rosemary. I think, you know, your, your take your, I, I really love that approach of the idea of breaking it down into micro skills and, you know, just trying to capitalize on every opportunity you have with your learner um, to make sure that they're not missing out. And then arguably, um, you know, helping them not to be overloaded by doing all the different things at the same time, right? And so if you're just focusing on the on those micro skills, I think that's perfect. And that's exactly, you know, what we do, just like you said, the, you know, the first year fellow will do the parts of the procedure that is appropriate for them. And then the third year fellow might jump in and do an EBIS at the end. Um, just it, since we have the luxury of typically having two fellows there. And when we don't have that luxury, what I'll often do is just, as you said, I may show them how to stick a node and then I may let them do one or two jabs and then I'll take it over to move on to the next node. You know, so I do what I think is appropriate for their level of learning to not overload them. So as fellows are like moving forward and getting more of these skills under their belts, is there a, um, like, do you have an expectation for where they should be by the time they finish? Do you 
verbalize that? Is it um, kind of set up or are you just kind of letting this unfold organically as they um, acquire skills through their clinical practice? Well, I think um, we do. I do have an expectation for them. We don't have set numbers, right? Um, that's really, as you know, the ACGME went away from a set number of bronchoscopies that have to be performed before graduating from fellowship. So it used to be 100. And um, a few years ago now, they took away that hard number obligation. And now it's at the discretion of the program. And as their program director, um, I do expect them to be competent in what I consider diagnostic bronchoscopy. So um, if, and what level that needs to be. So we collect procedural evaluations. We do use the OBAT, um, which I'm sure many people are familiar with, the Ontario Bronchoscopy Assessment Tool um, in our bronchoscopy suite. We don't use it every day, but we use it intermittently to help guide feedback and um, help fellows see their progression. Um, and then in addition, we'd uh, sit down as a procedural group and then kind of talk through where fellows are at as they get uh, closer to graduation to make sure that they're getting all the tools they need. But um, not every fellow, I would say, from our program um, graduates with uh, total competence in EBIS, but I do expect them all to graduate with, you know, flexible diagnostic bronchoscopy, BALs, transbronchs, endobronchial biopsies, and those things. And then I try to expose them to EBIS as much as I can. If I know that's going to be part of their practice is say if they're headed into private practice or something like that, then we usually get them extra EBIS time to make sure that they are competent in that. Because I do think it takes probably, a, I mean, if I'm going to throw out a rough number, I think someone needs to do at least 50 EBISes before they're going to feel comfortable <laughs> doing that independently, but that's, that's really rough. So, and I have no data to support that. So I'm going to pull that number down, <laughs> maybe more in the range of 25, um, but yeah, no data. Um, uh, so um, I think Darlene is describing a, a robust system that, that makes a lot of sense. Our fellowship program will have a similar experience. We, um, I don't think we've graduated a fellow um, saying that they're competent at EBUS. That's not the sort of, we have, uh, I think every program has its strengths and one of ours is research. And that sort of means that sometimes there are some other things that aren't as strong. Um, uh, but our fellows do get EBUS experience. And likewise, we will um, tailor their third year experiences to what they're looking for uh, for their career. And Similarly, if it turns out that somebody's bronchoscopy experience isn't as robust as it needs to be, then we'll have mechanisms for working on increasing numbers and therefore experience and exposure during that third year. That makes a lot of sense. Um, I just want to make one other comment, Melissa. I think that's one of the challenges for um, education and program directors for today is to actually determine when people have met um, their uh, level of competence for graduation. I mean, we have some assessment tools that are gathering good validity evidence behind them, but it's still a challenge to routinely use them always. Um, so I, I think that that's uh, a challenge that we'll have to continue to think through as uh, education leaders in our field. Yeah, I think that's a, an excellent point. Um, uh, and it may be different for the, the numbers may be different from one learner to the next. So I think um, it's a, a bit of a moving target in multiple ways. Well, I want to thank, uh, give a big thank you to Dr. Adamson and Dr. Nelson for their insights into this topic. I've learned a lot. I've had a lot of fun talking about this um, uh, bronchoscopy education topic, and I really appreciate you taking time to talk with me. Have a great day. 
Thank you.